We come again this morning to the preaching of the Word of God, and I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, as we continue to go verse by verse through this epistle. This is an amazing text that we have before us. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 22. Actually, we'll not be able to get to all of them, but we will be examining God's revelation to us about what drives false teachers, what motivates them. And thus, I have entitled my discourse to you this morning, What Drives a False Teacher? And this will be part one of a two-part series. Before we read the text and examine it, may I remind you that the New Testament warns us repeatedly about false teachers rising up within the church. And yet, sadly, only a small minority of churches these days seem to heed the warning. Years of soft preaching has produced soft hearts. Years of a cheap grace evangelism that has widened the gate of the gospel to include anybody, regardless of what they believe, has filled the church with unregenerate, undiscerning, and ungodly worshipers. Years of being like the world rather than separate from the world has caused us to forfeit blessing. Because of our obsession to be culturally relevant these days, we have traded our spiritual birthright to be spirit-empowered preachers of the transforming truth for a porridge of meaningless dribble that is deceiving and damning the souls of men. The church has been lulled to sleep. Very few watchmen stand on the walls these days, and as we slumber away, false teachers come in and rape and pillage. Ah, but no one should dare sound the alarm, because after all, the supreme virtue of the church these days is tolerance. Unity at all costs. It is politically incorrect, as we know not to mention intellectually dishonest and arrogant, to assume that anybody knows the truth. So let's don't be critical, let's don't be dogmatic, especially about doctrine. That's too divisive. Therefore, with that kind of unbiblical mindset, mainstream evangelicalism is now utterly apostate, denying both the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I would hasten to add, that's not to say that all churches are that way, but certainly the majority are. So-called carnal Christians dominate the evangelical landscape with false teachers constantly reassuring them that they're genuinely born again, regardless of the debauchery in their life and the fruitlessness in their life. They're born again in their mind simply because once upon a time they made a profession of faith. Women are allowed to teach men, though Scripture clearly forbids it. Homosexuals now are leaders in churches being ordained as pastors and bishops. Expository preaching that nourishes the souls of the saints has now been replaced for the most part, by sermonettes for Christianettes or in some sectors replaced by dialogue. And the result is Christians are as shallow as water on a plate. They have no understanding of doctrine and therefore they have no discernment and no power. For the most part, many churches have become little more than social clubs, entertainment centers, and in many cases, if you take away their music, nobody would come. They're long on entertainment, but short on rightly dividing the word of truth. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find a church these days that disciplines sin. And as you look around, you see that avant-garde evangelicals are systematically dismantling 
all of the orthodox doctrines of the church. And yet, for the most part, they go largely unchallenged. Beloved, may I remind you that we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And we must not, therefore, be tolerant towards error, but be zealous for the truth. Make no mistake about it. We are at war. And my friends, as your pastor, and I know many, if not all of you agree with this, we must attack error wherever it begins to breach the walls. Charles Spurgeon very poignantly summarized the war that we are in this way, and I quote, the church of Christ is continually represented under the figure of an army, yet its captain is the prince of peace. Its object is the establishment of peace, and its soldiers are men of peaceful disposition. The spirit of war is at the extremely opposite point of the spirit of the gospel. Yet, nevertheless, the church on earth has, and until the second advent, must be the church militant, the church armed, the church warring, the church conquering. And how is this? It is in the very order of things that so it must be. Truth could not be truth in this world if it were not a warring thing. And we should at once suspect that it were not true if error were friends with it. The spotless purity of truth must always be at war with the blackness of heresy and lies. End quote. As we have seen, the Lord of the church has a holy hatred of anyone who distorts or denies the truth that he has revealed to us in Scripture. The fact that God pronounced judgment upon false teachers, even in eternity past, proves his utter contempt for them. Jude 4 says of them that they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Moreover, we have learned that he warns us over and over again in the New Testament, to be aware of wolves in sheep's clothing, those that will rise up from among you. You'll know them by their fruits. And he gives us detailed information regarding how to detect them in many passages in Scripture. Certainly the one I just mentioned in Matthew 7 and here in Second Peter and certainly in Jude. Beloved, please understand, we have been given a sacred treasure of truth, and we must guard it. Not just me, but you and your families and your Sunday school classes, wherever it is. Paul passionately told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, gone astray from the faith. And Jesus commanded us to judge with righteous judgment in John 7:24. We are also to reject unrepentant heretics and expel them from the church. Titus 3:10. And on and on it goes. In Jude 3 and 4, we are told to contend earnestly for the faith, that which was revealed to us in scripture because satanic imposters will try to subvert it. And in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And friends, you must understand that the reason why the truth of the gospel is so extremely important is because it alone can free men from the bondage and the penalty of sin. Only the truth of Scripture, of the gospel, can reconcile sinful man to a holy God. Only the truth can transform men and women and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness and place them into the kingdom of light and free men from their slavery of sin to walk in the freedom of Christ and, and give men and women and boys and girls eternal life. Only the truth can do that. And once you start trifling with the truth, you literally begin to trifle with the eternal destiny of men's souls. So, because we love the truth, we will fight for the truth. 
as we endeavor to understand the amazing insights that God has given us to help us understand how to spot these clandestine and clever messengers of Satan. We've learned thus far in verses 1 through the first part of verse 3 in Second Peter 2 that their methods will be secret, their message will be sacrilegious, their masquerade will be seductive, their morals will be scandalous, and their motives will be selfish. And then in, at the end of verse 3 through the first part of verse 10, we learned of the pronouncement, paradigm, and proficiency of God's judgment upon them. And now the Holy Spirit speaks to us yet again through his inspired apostle concerning the motivations of false teachers. What drives them, if you will, what makes them tick? A fascinating diatribe that leaves no doubt that God has utmost contempt for those who dare trifle with the truth. Now we come to the text. Follow along as I read, beginning in the middle of verse 10 through verse 22. We are told that they are daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Yet these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received rebuke for his own transgression for a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the blackness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Today we will understand a bit better what drives these false teachers. And I have divided the passage of Scripture that I've just read into five sections. We will only be able to look at the first three this morning. But let me give you the motivations of a false teacher in summary form. First of all, we will see that they are motivated by a cocky disregard for demonic powers. Secondly, a calloused desire for sexual pleasure. Thirdly, a criminal devotion to personal prosperity. Fourthly, a cryptic doctrine appealing to the flesh. And finally, they are motivated by a careful disguise of feigned righteousness. And my prayer is that each of you this morning will gain insight into the wicked reasons these men and women corrupt the gospel and deny the lordship of Christ. But also I want you to see how prevalently these impulses are manifested in the quasi-Christian world of neo-evangelicalism today. First of all, in the middle of verse 10, we understand more about what I would call a cocky disregard for demonic powers. Notice what it says. They are daring. 
It means brazen. They are presumptuous. It means recklessly defiant. They are also self-willed, a word that means they are arrogant, they're conceited, they're without restraint. Daring, self-willed, it says they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Revile, the Greek term is blasphemia. We get blaspheme from that. It means to slander or insult. And what are they slandering and insulting? Angelic majesties, literally in the Greek, doxai, which means glories or celestial beings. And in the context here, especially as indicated in verse 11, this is a reference to demons. In other words, in their defiance and arrogance, they fearlessly and foolishly insult demons. Now, this must have been common back in the early church. It is certainly common today. You must understand, because these false teachers consider themselves to be spiritually superior to others and, frankly, to any created being, it is common to hear false teachers mocking and rebuking and binding Satan and his minions, or at least thinking they are doing that. You can go to the bookstore today and you can find whole sections of Christian bookstores filled with books of false teachers who are giving clever formulas about how to renounce Satan and rebuke Satan and bind Satan. These men today even fill stadiums with naive disciples mesmerized by their novel insights and presumed exorcisms. I'm amazed as I, as they, as I watch them from time to time pretend to command the spirit world to do their bidding like an arrogant general would try to demean a private. Friends, this is the height of audacity, the height of authoritarianism, to think that you actually have power and authority over the prince and the power of the air and the supernatural hosts of hell. One can only imagine how Utterly overbearing and controlling these blasphemers are to their followers if they would treat demons in such a way. And Peter here contrasts this with with how the mighty holy angels would act. And he shows the folly of such behavior in verse 11. He says, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. In other words, even the holy angels who are exceedingly more powerful then the fallen angel, angels show more caution than this. We read in Jude 9 in verse 10 about how that God sent Michael, the chief angel that watches over Israel, to come and to fight against Satan. And there Jude says, they revile angelic majesties, they referring to the false teachers. And then he goes on to say, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, referring to the false teachers, revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Friends, this is a lesson that we should all learn very well. We are never to personally address Satan or demons. We are never to do that. But rather, we cry out to the Lord of hosts to come and to intervene. It is His sovereign and omnipotent arm that wields the sword of divine intervention, not our puny little arms. Our power is not in our authority. Frankly, we have none. Our power is in, now catch this, our obedience to the Lordship of Christ. In James 4, 7, it's very clear. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's never a call to rebuke or bind or renounce or write letters to or exercise or have some mystical incantation that we use to somehow defeat Satan. Simply, we are called to resist his temptations by submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Paul made this very clear in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then we are told to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
I remember once going to a very popular spiritual warfare seminar. I wanted to hear what all the clamor was about. And the false teacher that was there was quick to sell his books to tell you how to renounce Satan and how to bind him. And the assumption, by the way, which is an unbiblical assumption, is that a Christian can be indwelt by demons. And if you are a Christian and you are struggling with life dominating sins, the reason for that is because of some kind of demonic force within you and you need to learn how to get rid of that force. First of all, without getting off on it much, demons do not dwell in Christians. That's the abode of the Holy Spirit of God. But secondly, friends, you are never to renounce Satan. That's what false teachers do. Don't you understand? You resist. We're called to be strong in the Lord. We are called to stand firm, put on the the full armor of God and so on. If you were to go to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and following, you read a passage there concerning spiritual warfare and the divine weaponry that is available to every saint. And there we are in essence told to fight, to assault systems, not spirits. And in verse 5, we are told to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish or literally avenge all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. It's interesting, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 19 for a moment, God gives us a powerful and even, frankly, a comical illustration of the stupidity of such a cocky disregard for demonic power in the story of the phony Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of the chief priest, Sceva. And we read about this in Acts 9, beginning in verse 11 just wanted to read this passage to you so that it sinks deep within your mind. The folly of much of what we are called to do in many evangelical circles today. In verse 11, it says, And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I have personally encountered people who are clearly demon-possessed. I've been around a number of false teachers. I have counseled a number of false teachers. Some of them you would know. It's interesting, by the way, they're usually rather easily spotted. I find it fascinating. They love to wear black. They're typically very flamboyant, ostentatious. They love to flaunt their wealth. They travel typically with an entourage of mindless sycophants and slavish servants. They are authoritarian control freaks. They're utterly unteachable. And what's interesting is their arrogance is typically veiled by a cloak of feigned humility and kindness and lots and lots of Bible verses. And in some cases, I have experienced firsthand their supernatural strength and diabolical deceptions. On a few occasions, I have been astonished by sounds that come 
from their mouth that are clearly not human, especially when you confront them with the truth of the gospel. I have seen the supernatural sway that they have over their followers, sometimes masses, even stadiums full of people. Routinely, I read of their ingenious heresies to know how to warn and protect you. And I know this, my friends, I am absolutely no match for the demons. Neither are you. But I have no fear, for greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. And I will do, and what I would encourage you to do is the very same thing. I'm going to simply be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, you see. God has not left us defenseless. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.10. But these false teachers, they dare to revile angelic majesties. In verse 12, Peter goes on and says, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. This is powerful imagery. He's saying that they're like wild animals that merely act upon instinct. There's no reasoning. There's no analysis. There's not even common sense here. They're merely ruled by their lusts. It says they're reviling where they have no knowledge. <laughs> even though they think they do, they don't. False teachers are so consumed with pride, you'll quickly find when you interact with them that they are a legend in their own mind. They not only manifest a cocky disregard for demonic powers, but frankly, for any authority whatsoever, including man's authority and God's authority. They answer only to themselves. That's why very often you will find them to be what many would call narcissistic. They're so filled with pride that in their minds, the rules that apply to everybody else don't apply to them. I'm special. I'm unique. And that's why many times you'll see that they're usually in trouble with the IRS and civil authorities. But notice the condemnation that will fall upon them. The end of verse 12, he says that they will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Here is a reference to the cataclysmic destruction upon the earth when the Lord returns again in his second coming. When he comes as a consuming fire, a consuming fire of divine fury that will Consume the false teachers along with the unreasoning animals that are on the world that they emulate. And he says, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Suffering wrong could be translated suffering injury, suffering harm as the wages of doing wrong. It, another way of translating it would be that they will be paid back harm for the harm that they have done. In fact, in the original language, this is actually a play on Greek Words is saying, in essence, that these apostates will suffer harm as a wage of injury because of what they have done. So it's very clear in Scripture that these deceivers will not go unpunished. A day is coming when their haughty defiance will be forced to bow the knee to the one they have denied. So first, Peter describes their motivation, their driving force of being people that are consumed with a cocky disregard for demonic powers. But secondly, he speaks of what I would call a calloused desire for sexual pleasure. This is another dominating force in their life. Verse 13, we read, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, you must understand a bit of the context here. In the Roman days, it was a violation of cultural values to revel in the daytime. At nighttime, you could indulge in any kind of debauchery you desired. But in the daytime, you had to restrain yourself and be upright, kind of moral citizens, so to speak. And when I thought about this, I realized that really things haven't changed very much. Even today, people in our culture do their carousing and their fornicating under the cover of darkness. And then they sober up in the daytime and display a public persona of moral uprightness. But false teachers, Peter is telling us, 
are so seared in their conscience by years of immorality. They're so calloused by sexual sin that it says they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. The word pleasure, head and I, um, and in the original language, we get hedonism from that. It is a term used in the New Testament to describe sensual gratification. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, they have no shame, whether it's day or night. He goes on at the end of verse 13. He says, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Stains and blemishes, words that describe disfigurement, malignancy, the oozing sores, if you will, of a diseased person. And they're reveling in their deceptions. In other words, the text is saying that that life is one big wild party for them. They are drunk with the wine of their immorality and their idolatry as they carouse with you. Carouse in the original language is a term used to describe eating or feasting together. And perhaps this was a reference to the love feast that occurred in the early church and often accompanied the Lord's Supper. They would have a large uh, meal together, as we often do at the end of a service. Uh, maybe it is referring to that, the table of communion, but certainly it involves also some level of, of intimate fellowship with other saints, underscoring their amazing ability to blend in without deception as they eat, as they fellowship, as they carouse with you. So here, these imposters come in among the true church, infecting naive and undiscerning Saints and unbelievers with the devastating diseases of their spiritual deceptions and their physical decadence. And at the beginning of verse 14, it says that they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Fascinating text. In other words, they are so consumed with unbridled sexual desire that every person they see is viewed as a potential Sexual partner. Sadly, this is a common spectacle, I believe, even in our society, not just among false teachers. Routinely, I see men who mentally undress women as the waitress walks by. Women who gawk at men and swoon and cry, especially when they find themselves in the presence of some handsome man or some celebrity. Folks, this is the stuff that sells pornography. This is the theme of movies, television programs, and so on. Sex sells. Think of all of the products we look at that have some half-dressed woman next to them. Why? Because people know that the eyes of the world... That sinful people, even though they wouldn't call it that, have eyes that are filled with adultery. And here the Holy Spirit continues to expose their true motivation. The true motivation of these apostate charlatans. They are sexual predators, always on the prowl for another victim to use and to abuse. Why not? They submit to no authority. They do not bow to God, they have no self-restraint. The Spirit of God is not within them. They are slaves to sin. Every few months we hear of another evangelical pastor, quote-unquote, caught in some sex scandal. And many times you will hear that, oh, it's so sad, this dear pastor fell into sin. Beloved, you must understand something, if I, I can digress for a moment. We do not fall into sin. Instead, what we do is we commit sins that we have been rehearsing in our minds for years. What happens is in our minds, we habitually think about certain sexual fantasies and eventually we act upon them. And what is especially frightening, in some cases, these men that fall into sexual sin we're teaching things that are doctrinally sound. I've seen that happen. That's when it's especially frightening. 
They might be doctrinally sound, but they have no personal integrity. These are the most dangerous. Most of them, the doctrine is just bizarre, but not in all cases. And if I could digress for a moment once again as your pastor. This is a real burden of my heart for all of you and all that are listening to me. I would challenge all of you to guard yourself against secret sin. Guard yourself against secret sin. Especially those secret sins in your imagination. Those fantasies of immoral liaisons played out in the dark corners of your imagination where you think no one sees. But God sees. And as you continue to flirt with those sins and savor them in your mind... Eventually, they begin to grow and the flesh begins to be increasingly ignited and you begin to look for more and more places to somehow satisfy the lusts. And as you continue to fan the flames of your lusts, your passions get greater and greater. And the enemy of our souls knows precisely where to place temptations. And they're everywhere. And as long as your heart is inflamed, you will be a sucker for the snares of the devil. It's sad to watch Christian men especially look upon women with eyes of adultery. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 26 that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Many Christian men and women and even children, children in some of our families, are being seduced by a sex-crazed world as they fill their mind with immoral images and lyrics, as they watch television and listen to all of the trash that's on the radio and in the music stores. And little by little, what happens, dear friends, is you inch closer and closer to some devastating immoral encounter as you savor those favorite sexual fantasies in the secret chambers of your imagination. And little by little, you walk closer and closer towards the edge of the precipice, towards the edge of the slippery slope. And once you start sliding, the momentum will pick you up and the devastation will be severe. No child of God, I warn you, the seeds of immorality grow well in the fertile soil of our imaginations. But likewise, it is there that they can easily be destroyed. And there you have to learn to mortify sin in your mind, in your heart. Never cease in your fighting against indwelling sin, my friends. It's a principle that will remain in you until the day that you are glorified. Paul said in Romans 7:18, he lamented, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. As I lived with this text this week, I was reminded of something the great Puritan John Owen said in this regard, and I quote, Never let us reckon that our work in contending against sin, in crucifying, mortifying, and subduing of it, is at an end. The place of its habitation is unsearchable. And when we may think that we have thoroughly won the field, there is still some reserve remaining that we saw not. That we knew not of. Many conquerors have been ruined by their carelessness after a victory. And many have been spiritually wounded after great successes against this enemy. End quote. So here in this text, friends, we see that false teachers have no regard for the holiness of God. No restraint from the flesh. And notice again in verse 14, it says that they have eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Now, think about this. It is not enough that they defile themselves with their deceptions and fornications. But they also deceive others and drag them into the same pit with them. Enticing the word in the original language means to ensnare, to trap especially to trap by using some kind of a bait. And what is their bait? Their ministry. And I use the term loosely. In other words, the whole package of what they present, their charismatic personality, the Bible verses that drip 
off of their mouth. They are self-confident, successful, giving you an appealing message, a popular message. They are enormously convincing. And they're kind. And they're caring. And they're compassionate. And they are poisonous. Remember, they will appear as Satan, as an angel of light. They're selling the wide gate to heaven that many will enter, not the narrow gate that few will find. That you have to strive to enter, but many will not be able, as Jesus said in Luke 13, 24. Well, who are they trying to ensnare? Who are their victims? Who are the targets of these false teachers? And the answer, he says, unstable souls. Unstable means unsteady, volatile people with no solid foundation. In fact, this is the opposite of those that he described in chapter 1, verse 12, those established in the truth. You see, he's referring here to the unstable souls that float in and out of the churches, people that are undiscerning that are doctrinally illiterate, that are naive, immature Christians, along with unbelievers that fill the churches. And Peter warns about these kinds of people being in the church, those who cannot understand sound doctrine and even disregard the warnings pertaining to false teachers. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says that they are the untaught, untaught and unstable. He says, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Unstable souls. And friends, the church is filled with them today. Easy prey for con artists. Let me give you an example of how this thing flows. Here's how it works. Naive people, sometimes unwitting, sometimes witting, but many times unwitting, have learned a quasi-gospel, a distorted gospel, a wide-gate gospel. And they come before people and they give them an easy-believism type of a gospel. They open up the wide gate and the tares fill the church. For years now, you have unsaved people, not only in churches, but leading churches and even pastoring churches. Many times then you'll have untrained or even unsaved pastors filling pulpits. You'll have people then in churches with no saving faith. They are spiritually dead. And for years we had that even here in America. We continue to have it. But their faith is dead. And when your faith is dead and you don't want to admit it, but you know that there's no reality in your heart, you've got to fill the void with something. Oh, and Satan has a wonderful smorgasbord for you. You can fill it with legalism or, if you like, emotionalism, mysticism, ritualism, revivalism. There's all kinds of things that get people excited and make them feel godly. But in reality, nothing is really working. The next generation comes up and they see the phoniness in their parents. They see the hypocrisy. They see the lack of restraint of sin. They realize that something's missing. Oh, and Satan comes along and provides something that will make the church feel new and alive. Invigorated and exciting. Easy to sell because people have no discernment. And the answer is we've got to become more like the world. We've got to become like the world in order to win it. We've got to become culturally relevant. We've got to become seeker-sensitive. We've got to learn to embrace our culture and somehow become politically and therefore religiously correct. Like the church of Laodicea, we become apostate. Remember that church in Revelation 3 and verse 17. Remember, they were bragging, oh, I am rich and I am wealthy. In other words, we've got the ascended knowledge. We are the spiritual elite. The text says that we have need of nothing. And God says, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Well, anyway, with the new 
system now, we can fill up churches. We can show life. I mean, who's going to argue against numbers, right? On the outside, the church looks alive, but it is dead. And tragically now, you have, I believe, in most churches, church leaders that have no idea what a New Testament church looks like and are offended if you dare challenge them on it. Paul warned about this in 2 Timothy 4.3. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So what do you have? Unstable souls. Then enter the false teachers to entice, to snare, to bait, to entrap. False teachers who, according to 2 Timothy 3, hold to a form of godliness, but it's not real. Paul goes on to say that they enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Unstable souls ensnared by false teachers, driven first of all by a cocky disregard for demonic power, secondly, a callous desire for sexual pleasure, and then thirdly and finally this morning, they're driven by a criminal devotion to personal prosperity. Notice the end of verse 14. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. You see, this is the next logical characteristic, isn't it? First of all, you've got a person that perceives themselves to be above all authority. Also, a person consumed with sexual immorality. Now, I ask you, have you ever known a person like that who isn't also as greedy as a dictator with a funny little hat in a third world country? It's always going to go together. And it says they have a heart trained. Having a heart trained. The word trained in Greek is gymnazo. We get our word gymnasium from that. It's a term denoting physical exercise and the discipline required to excel in athletics. You see, friends, this is a frightening picture. And I want you to grasp it. These charlatans are like Olympic athletes who have trained themselves, disciplined themselves in the art of deceiving and defrauding people out of their money. That's what drives them. They're con men and women, hucksters, swindlers. They got a Ph.D. in conning unstable souls out of their money. Those who are like children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Ephesians 4.14. By the way, it's interesting in that text I just read to you, the trickery of men. Trickery was a term in Greek, kubaya. And uh, we get our word cube from that. And it was a term that had reference to dice that was played. They, they played dice like people do today. And dishonest gamblers would put weights in the dice, and we would call those loaded dice, to produce an outcome in their favor. And so the term became synonymous with trickery. So the unstable souls are are described in Ephesians 4.14 as children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in other words, by the loaded dice of charlatans, but by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, here's the imagery. The imagery is a false teacher is like a dishonest gambler with loaded dice playing with children, trying to trick them. Can you imagine that? And that's precisely what goes on. Most of them have slavish, have a slavish commitment to materialism. They live lavish lifestyles and they have no conscience when it comes to who they will defraud. I remember confronting one fundraiser of a false teacher. I was talking with him and I said... Sir, I've got to ask you, how can you, how can you raise the millions and millions of dollars you raise for this people and, the, and this whole ministry on television when, when you've got to know that what they teach is phony? These people are phony. I know them. They're immoral. 
And he kind of laughed. He didn't take offense to it at all. He said, hey, and this is a paraphrase, people are going to buy dreams. They're going to spend their money gambling. They're going to spend their money on the lottery, alcohol, drugs, might as well be us. And it was interesting, by the way, that their target group for fundraising, he said, were women in their 40s and 50s, especially those that um, love to watch soap operas and read romance novels. Weak women weighed down with sins. So these men are driven by a criminal devotion to personal prosperity. It says having a heart trained in greed, in other words, avarice or covetousness. They're consumed with greed. The grammar indicates that they have an insatiable appetite for more and more because sin never satisfies. And it's little wonder that the Holy Spirit closes this section with a fitting description. They are accursed children. You see, the Jews understood this expression. Anytime you were a child of something, you were a child that had been shaped or fashioned by something that you loved, something that you were being influenced by. So in this case, he is in essence saying these are children of the devil. They bear the characteristics of their father, the father of lies. They are indeed accursed children living under the curse of divine justice. Now, the next time we're together, we will examine the final two motivations. We're going to see that they will also have a cryptic doctrine appealing to the flesh and a careful disguise of feigned righteousness. May God grant us discernment and guard us from these vicious and deceptive predators. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the great precision that You have given us in Your Word to help us understand these predators that would do such damage to the cause of Christ that could even deceive our precious children and grandchildren and brothers and sisters and parents and friends. Lord, may we be ever vigilant in our battle for the truth. And I pray, Lord, that if there be a person here today that knows nothing of You, that has somehow been deceived by something or some person, Lord, I pray that You will expose to them the light of the glorious Gospel of Christ and convict them of their sin. May You have mercy on them and save them this day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.